and let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we remind ourselves of those words of Jesus in John chapter 15, that apart from him, we can do nothing. And we know that without Christ's help by his Spirit, nothing of any lasting effect will be achieved as we turn to your word this evening. And so we look to Christ and we pray for his Spirit's help in and through the preaching of his word, that it would succeed in that for which it is sent, for the saving, keeping the perfection of his people, for his glory's sake. And in his name we ask it all. Amen. Well, on this Easter day, I thought it would be good for us to spend our time in our evening service looking at the story of one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. In total, there are about 12 different resurrection appearances recorded for us in the New Testament. And the one we're looking at tonight is, we think, the seventh of these 12. And as John tells us now in verse, third, sorry, verse 14, this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to a group of his disciples. So there's been other appearances as well, but in terms of meeting a group of disciples, this is the third time that that has happened. Of course, the first appearance to the disciples as a group was in the upper room on the evening of Easter Sunday. Then the second appearance was in the same place exactly one week later, the next Sunday. Of course, this time with Thomas in attendance as well. And then the story we're going to look at this evening is the third time when the risen Jesus has appeared to a group of the disciples. And the story takes place up in Galilee, up in the north. And there is a very good reason why this story takes us up to Galilee. Remember what the angel had said to the women in the empty tomb. Mark chapter 16, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen, he is not here, see the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him, just as he told you. And so in obedience to that command, the disciples have now traveled up to Galilee, and they're expecting at some point for Jesus to come and meet them there. And on this particular day, we don't know which day exactly, there were seven of the disciples gathered together, and they decide to go fishing. John tells us, doesn't he? Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And the other six said to him, we will go with you. And a lot of commentators, as you probably know, really stick the knife into Peter at this point as if doing something as mundane as going fishing just isn't appropriate now that Jesus has risen from the dead. But of course, that is nonsense. They still need to eat. 
And so this is something that needs to happen. They go fishing to try and catch some fish to eat. And as we look at this story, we'll notice that there are a number of very strong parallels with another story which we find in the Gospels. We find that parallel story in Luke chapter 5. I'm sure you're familiar with that story. Maybe you'd even like to just glance at it for a moment. It's Luke chapter 5 and verses 1 to 11. Uh, Notice a number of similarities that we see between that story and this story. They both take place in the same location. And they're by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now John calls it the Sea of Tiberias, but it's just another name for the same body of water. As well as that, both stories feature some of the same people. And both stories probably even take place in the exact same boat. It's not just a boat, but the boat, says John. That is the boat that is owned by Simon Peter. So we can assume this is the same boat in both stories. Again, in both stories, essentially the same miracle takes place, doesn't it? This enormous, miraculous catch of fish. In both stories, that miraculous catch of fish takes place after a whole night of fishing and catching absolutely nothing. Both stories culminating exactly the same confession. Jesus is declared to be Lord. The first story takes place right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry when he called his first disciples. Then this story kind of bookends things, doesn't it? It takes place right at the end of his public ministry. He's about to leave his disciples. He's about to ascend to heaven in not too long. Now there are as well a number of important differences between those two stories. We'll come to the differences later on. But we should recognize, first of all, all of these parallels, all of these similarities between Luke 5 and John 21. And given those similarities, I think it is legitimate to say that the underlying message of the miracle is essentially the same in both cases. And in Luke chapter 5, Jesus had made it clear that what that miracle pointed towards was gospel work, gospel ministry. That's what he says to Peter in Luke chapter 5, isn't it? After the, the first miraculous catch of fish, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And I take it therefore that this reenactment of this miracle Again, Jesus is teaching the disciples something about their commission to go and preach the gospel so that many people can be gathered in to Christ's kingdom. So let's look at this story together. We'll notice this evening four principles of gospel ministry that are set before us here by the risen Jesus. And the first is this. Gospel ministry is blessed with Christ's presence. Gospel ministry is blessed with Christ's presence. And the disciples that evening get into the boat. And they go out onto the Sea of Galilee to go and do some fishing, as they had done so countless times before. 
But this particular night, they have a dreadful time of it. And John says, that night they caught nothing. Not a single fish. And you can imagine how frustrated, how tired, how fed up these seven disciples would have been come the next morning. All of that work, all of that effort, and not even a single tiddler to show for it. They were deeply frustrated. And gospel work is often like that, isn't it? You can put your heart and your soul into it, and you can slog your guts out, and there can be very little fruit to show for it. And you you hear stories, don't you, of missionaries, and they go to far-flung countries, and they spend their whole lives sharing Christ with others. And yet at the end of their lives, they've not seen a single convert. And we know it ourselves, don't we? Maybe you serve in a, a particular ministry in this church. And you've worked so hard for such a long time and you've been so faithful. And yet there just doesn't seem to be much progress being made. Or in your personal life, you, you're praying for and you're witnessing to unbelieving friends and family members and neighbours and colleagues and yet none of them seems to be the slightest bit interested in anything that you have to say about Jesus. Gospel work can be frustrating, can't it? So these disciples, as the the sun is about to rise and as the morning is about to come, uh, they decide that they will give it up as a bad job. They'll head back to shore. And they're still about 100 yards, we're told, from the shore. And they see that there is a man standing on the beach very, very early in the morning. And it's still quite dark, so they can't quite clearly see who it is. They just notice that there is a man standing there. He's probably in his early 30s, they think, and he's, he's looking out across the water to them. And then this man calls out to them. He says, children, do you have any fish? And actually in the original, it's much more colloquial, much more slang really than that. Ted Donnelly paraphrases this and he he says it's like the man is saying to them, as we would put it, you don't even have a tiny fish, do you boys? And you see, somewhat strangely, this man on the shore knows all about their frustration. There's something mysterious about that, isn't there? He's still a hundred yards away. How can he know what has happened on that particular boat all throughout the night? And yet somehow he knows. He knows all the frustrations that these people have been through. And of course they don't realize it yet, but it is Jesus. And he's mindful of the frustrations of his people, his disciples. And it is very comforting to know that, isn't it? When we seek to serve Christ... And we work so hard and nothing seems to happen. And Jesus is still present. He's there. And he's not forgotten us. He's not left us in the lurch. And what is more, he is mindful of all of our frustrations. Uh, He's able to sympathize with us. And when we compare this story with Luke 5 once again, uh, we notice that though Jesus is present in both stories. He is present in a slightly different way 
isn't he? Remember Luke 5, he is physically with the disciples in the boat, physically present with them. And yet in John 21, he is physically removed from them. And even though he is removed from them physically, yet he's still watching them and he's still aware of them. Uh, He still is with his disciples, but he's with them in a different way now. And maybe this is pointing us to the fact that a a new era is about to begin. And in that new era for God's people, Jesus is going to be physically taken away from his people. He's going to ascend to heaven. And yet he will still be present with them, although he will be present with them in a a different way now. He'll still be watching over them. He will still be mindful of them. He will still sympathize with them in all of their frustrations. And of course, we know that it's by the spirit of Christ that today we're blessed with Christ's presence. And in a few days after this event, Jesus would give that promise to his disciples, wouldn't he? As he's about to ascend to heaven, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This promise that even whilst he is physically removed from us and even whilst we're toiling away, perhaps with little fruit and with much frustration, gospel ministry is blessed with Christ's presence. And then secondly, gospel ministry submits to Christ's word. Gospel ministry submits to Christ's word. And at this stage, the disciples still don't know who this man on the shore is. But Jesus calls out to them and he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And you can perhaps imagine these disciples hearing this. These seven disciples were all professional fishermen. And they'd been working all night and it had all been to no avail. And now this stranger on the beach tries offering them a bit of advice. And you can imagine them looking at one another and rolling their eyes and maybe even muttering something uncomplimentary about this person on the beach. But they decide to give it a try anyway. Why not? After all, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And so they go ahead and they throw the net over the right side of the boat. And there is here another principle being shown to us, and that is that gospel ministry must submit to Christ's word. And how easily we get distracted from that. And we think to ourselves, if we can just find the right technique, if we can just find the right strategy, then we can make our ministry work. We can make our ministry effective. We can bring the results that we want to see through our own ingenuity. And of course, there is nothing wrong with planning and being intentional and being strategic about the way we shape our ministry. And yet, whatever we do, we must always bring it back to this very simple principle. In our ministry, we must submit to Christ's word, even when we think we know better. Last Sunday evening, Andrew very helpfully reminded us of this principle in the way that is taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul, you remember, writes in those words, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And so gospel ministry should never twist 
Christ's word, should never change Christ's word, should never ignore Christ's word. Now Jesus is showing us here, isn't he, in a very simple but vivid way, his word. His word sets the agenda. His word alone should guide us and instruct us. Gospel ministry submits to Christ's word. And then thirdly, gospel ministry succeeds through Christ's power. Gospel ministry succeeds through Christ's power. Look at what happens in this story. When Christ's people, who are blessed with Christ's presence, and are submitting to Christ's word, throw the net out into the sea. John writes, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And you know, in all of the gospel narratives, there are a number of occasions when we're told about the disciples going fishing. It happens a, a few times. Of course, many, many of these disciples, probably over half of them at least, were professional fishermen. And consider this, in the gospel accounts, how many fish do they catch without Jesus' help? The answer is precisely zero. Precisely zero. And I'm not a, a prophet, but I can tell you for certain sure how many people we will see converted through our ministry here without the help of Jesus. Precisely zero. Because gospel ministry succeeds only through Christ's power. And of course, that isn't to say that we're guaranteed wonderful growth and revival in our days. But it is true that the only way for a person to be gathered into Christ's kingdom is through the power of the risen Christ, by his spirit, opening their eyes, shining in their hearts, regenerating them from spiritual death to spiritual life, raising them up with him. Now, earlier on in John's Gospel, Jesus had had that amazing conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. We looked at it a few weeks ago. And you remember in that conversation how Jesus had spoken of the work of the Spirit being like the blowing of the wind. The point is in that illustration, the Spirit cannot be controlled by us. He cannot be predicted by us. He cannot be domesticated by us. He's sovereign. He's divine. And he goes where he wants and he does what he wants. And we are but the instruments in his hands being used for his sovereign purposes. And of course we cannot bring about a single conversion in our ministry without the power of Christ at work by his spirit. And then later in John's gospel Jesus used another picture to illustrate this point. The picture of a vine and branches. And of course a branch cannot grow and a, a branch cannot bear fruit unless it is connected to the vine, drawing its life and its health and its strength from the vine. Apart from the vine, the branches can do nothing. And in a similar way, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that long night out at sea without catching even a single fish was to teach the disciples and to teach us that apart from Christ, they could do nothing. And yet with his word guiding them and his power at work through them, they would do great things. 
Gospel ministry succeeds through Christ's power. And when we realize that, it stops us from foolishly trusting in ourselves and in our expertise and in our techniques as if they are going to produce even a single convert. And instead, it brings us to our knees in prayer, doesn't it? Because our ministry here can only bear fruit through Christ's power at work in us and through us. And apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. We must pray to him. And then notice something else here. Notice something in verse 11, a little bit later on, another detail in this story. Verse 11, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So not only were all of these fish gathered in, but as well as that, every last one of them was kept. All 153 of them, every last one of them. Not a single one that Jesus, by his power, had brought into that net, slipped through the gaps or wriggled free. The net was not torn. Once the fish were in, they were held secure. And again, I think that that detail is meant to teach us something that by his power, Jesus doesn't just gather people into his kingdom. But as well as that, by his power, he keeps them in his kingdom. He preserves them. And again, Jesus had told this to his followers, hadn't he, earlier on in John's gospel. In chapter 10, he'd used a different picture there. Not fish on this occasion, but sheep. Chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And as the good shepherd, he not only gathers his sheep into one flock, but he keeps them all safe right until the end. And it encourages us in our ministry, doesn't it? Of, of course, from our point of view, things are very messy. And from our point of view, it's a much more like Luke chapter 5, isn't it? Where the nets are breaking. The boats are sinking. It's all so chaotic. It's messy. From our point of view, people come and people go. People make professions of faith and then later they go back on it. One minute we're encouraged, the next minute we're discouraged. From our point of view, gospel ministry is a very messy business. And yet from Christ's point of view, his word always succeeds in accomplishing that for which it was sent. And no one who truly has been gathered into Christ's kingdom will ever be lost from it. When he begins a good work in a person's life, he will always bring it to completion. So this miracle demonstrates for us that both in the gathering of people into Christ's kingdom and in the keeping of his people in that kingdom, gospel ministry succeeds through Christ's power. And his power alone. And then fourthly and finally, we see that gospel ministry is sustained by Christ's provision. Gospel ministry is sustained by Christ's provision. And it's at this point that it becomes obvious to the disciples who it is on the beach. And we read that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of referring to himself, said to Peter, 
It is the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and jumped into the sea. And meanwhile, the other disciples came closer to the, the shore in the boat and they dragged the net full of fish. And then they all gathered together on the, the beach. And this lovely little scene plays out for us. Jesus has already made a little charcoal fire and some fish are cooking on it. And he's cooking breakfast for his friends. And he says to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went and he, he hauled the net ashore full of these 153 large fish. And then Jesus said to them all, come and have breakfast. By now the disciples have realized who exactly this is. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It's a beautiful scene, isn't it? These disciples are tired and they're hungry and they're cold. They've been working all night. There's been so much frustration along the way. And Jesus provides what they need to sustain them. He gives them a cooked breakfast on the beach as the sun comes up. And it's a lovely picture of how Jesus cares for the needs of his people. He knows what our needs are. And so by his provision, he sustains us with all that we need to keep going. And especially in those times when we're tired and we're frustrated and we've not seen the fruitfulness that we would like to have seen. Jesus sustains us in his service through his provision towards us. And of course, the ordinary way in which he does that is through the means of grace. That is through the reading and the preaching of his word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and through prayer. Those are the ordinary means by which Christ sustains his people, strengthens them, keeps them going. In his love and mercy towards us, this is what Jesus has provided for us to sustain us throughout our Christian lives so that we can keep on serving him. Gospel ministry is sustained by Christ's provision. And then maybe there's something else here that we shouldn't miss. And in a certain way, this breakfast on the beach is a little bit like a foretaste of glory for these disciples. A foretaste of glory. Look at it this way. Their work is now done. And at last they have reached the shore. And they've arrived in the place where finally they can find rest. And when they get to that place of rest, they discover that the risen Jesus himself is waiting for them there. And they see him face to face. And now they will sit down with him and they will feast with him. And it is, I think, a little foretaste of what awaits the people of Christ, those who serve him here. And even as they serve him here, they are blessed with his presence by the Spirit and they're guided by his word. And every success they encounter in their ministry is only by his power. Throughout it all, they are sustained by his gracious provision. But in the end, the work will be done. And at last we will see Jesus face to face. And we will enter into our eternal rest. 
and we will sit down to eat and drink with him. What a great prospect that is for us as we seek to serve Christ here. It's a foretaste of glory, isn't it? And as we close, let me ask you, is, is this the hope that you have as well? Do you know that you're going to be there in glory with Christ forever? And if not, while well, the right response to Jesus is demonstrated very vividly for you in this story, it's demonstrated by the, the two disciples that we focus on in verse 7, Simon, Peter, and John. What did John do? Well, John recognized that this is the Lord. He looked at the man on the beach, looked at Jesus, and he said, it is the Lord. And what did Peter do? Well, Peter came to Jesus, and he did so without delay, jumping into the sea, swimming those hundred yards or so, so that he could see Jesus. And you see, if you're not a Christian, you need to follow the example of these two disciples. And that is, you need to recognize, first of all, that this man, Jesus, is the Lord. He is the Lord. His resurrection from the dead confirms that to us. And then having recognized that he is the Lord, you need to come to him without delay, in repentance and faith in him. And for everyone who does that, we have a glorious picture here, don't we, of the everlasting, soul-nourishing fellowship with Jesus that awaits them. He is the Lord. Come to him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we praise and we thank you that our Saviour Jesus is risen from the dead. And yet even now he is present with us by his Spirit whom he has sent. And even as we face frustrations and setbacks in life and struggles in our service of him, yet he is with us still. And we pray that the principles of this great story from John chapter 21 would shape our ministry here. Help us to submit to Christ's word in all that we do. And in prayer, we look to his power to bring forth fruitfulness in our labors, in the gathering and the keeping of all of his people. And may we rest in the provision that Christ has given to us in the means of grace, so that we're sustained throughout all the ups and downs and all the challenges of our Christian lives. And we look forward to the day when all the work is done. And at last we meet him and we see him face to face and we enter into rest and into the fullness of joy as we eat and drink in the presence of the risen Saviour. We pray again for those who have not yet turned to Jesus. Father, we ask that you would work in their hearts so that they too would recognize Jesus as Lord and they would come to him in faith without delay. And Father, we pray all of these things in the precious name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.